0: Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London. Today on the podcast, Todd Haynes. Yes, Todd Haynes. Safe. I'm not there. Velvet Goldmine. The Karen Carpenter story. Far From Heaven. Carol. He's an amazing filmmaker. One of the godfathers of indie and queer filmmaking. He has a new documentary, The Velvet Underground. Finally, there's a VU documentary. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was dense. Great, deep exploration of the whole scene. Avant-garde music, underground filmmaking, literature, poetry. He went deep. I should say as i mentioned to todd during our chat that his audio commentary for the bob dylan biopic i'm not there is insane it's literally like a two-hour lecture he's just got notes um inspirations for the films photography essays film thinking interview ex excerpts excerpts Excerpts. Keep that in. Fuck it. Um, Yeah. Excerpts. It's so great. I, I walked away knowing way more about Bob Dylan than I ever thought I would. Anyway, me and Todd Haynes talking about the Velvet Underground and his approach to assembling this amazing documentary. So let's start at the beginning. When did you first get the idea to make a VU documentary? The, the,
1: the whole uh, project was sort of brought to me, uh, in this case, through after a series of events where I think Laurie Anderson had handed off the um, Lou Reed archives to the New York City Public Library. And then uh, people at UMG Verve, or the master's, Reside, uh, David Blackman, who runs film and television there, spoke to Lori and said, "Do you think this might be a time <clears throat> to maybe, you know, create a, a more in-depth uh, film or documentary about the band? And if so, who might be uh, a director that that they would feel co- she would feel comfortable about pursuing?" So. David came to me and my producer, Christine Vashon. This was 2017. Now, this was the first documentary I've ever made, but it was there was no question in my mind. I, I was absolutely interested from the, from the get-go.
0: And how was it? I've heard people say before that documentaries have been attempted, but people get scared because there's so little footage of the band. Was that exciting for you or was that daunting or both? That was... That was um, exciting for me
1: uh, because I knew that where the footage of the Velvet Underground resided, the little there is, is in the films of Andy Warhol and that they occupied this incredibly rare and sort of unprecedented relationship to the New York City art scene of the 60s. And so much of it had to do with avant-garde filmmaking that was happening at the time. And they, they various band members, had very close relationships with other uh, experimental filmmakers, Jack Smith, Piero Helix, Barbara Rubin, uh, Marie Menken. And so all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is, a, this is actually less than a limitation. This is an opportunity to dive into that world and let that those films and those filmmakers' visions sort of be the way we visualize this story.
0: Mm-hmm. The thing that threw me at first, and the thing, and it's the thing now that I can't stop thinking about. Um, that's a compliment if it is, doesn't sound like one. Was um, this wild opening you have, just focusing on the avant-garde music at the time, and the underground films? And you open with Tony Conrad and John Cage, and I was thinking. Where's the when's the Velvet Underground going to start? But that was such a audacious opening. Can you talk about that and why you chose that approach? It's funny.
1: I was I was watching the film. Um, I don't watch it at every uh, festival that I've been visiting these days. And I was at, at Telluride, and I was watching the film, and I, and, I, and I and I and I was at that point in that first act of the film, yeah. and thinking, wow, people are going to forget. What they're watching, they're gonna forget. Wait, what movie is this again? <laughs> and I actually, I actually thought thought that. I mean, that was always the intention to to go very deep into the sort of origins, the uh, excavate excavating of where the sound came from and what, how these very different artists, like in John Cale and in Lou Reed, and the different kinds of musical influences that were driving them, how they found each other, and what that means about the music. But what I think that, that, that sense of disorientation does is it helps you come to the music with fresh ears. And all of a sudden you're like, oh right, this is a Velvet Underground movie, and now the Velvet Underground has finally come together. And when we finally do get to the first cut in the film, which is Venus in Furs that's from the first record, Uh, it's the same music we use for the opening credits, but now it's the vocal and the full complete, you know, you really feel like you've traveled somewhere and that ideally it sort of jolts the ear into recognizing the music in a way that you hadn't before.
0: Yeah. And I love the fact that throughout the whole documentary, you're you're planting all the foundations in DNA, like you have the, Burroughs and Hubert Selby and Kenneth Anger, that all kind of formulates the DNA and influences of the band, which were much as much literary and fit film as they were musical.
1: Exactly. I mean, this is, I, I, I would say that, you know, when I did my, I did a film about Bob Dylan, I'm Not There, there was a dramatic but sort of experimental approach to a biopic using multiple actors to play Bob Dylan and and it was this you know I kept when one really delves into the creative life of the 1960s and this is particularly true in New York what you see are amazing layers of influences coming from poetry and literature and um, various strains of of American music and other music uh, outside of the United States all coming together in this sort of, you know, cross-pollinating, very fertile um, territory where people are swapping ideas. But the but but I would say yet again with the Velvet Underground, it's it's still a more underground, and sort of more degenerate kind of culture, <laughs> you know, of transgressive art art and artists that was influencing Lou Reed and a more experimental culture influencing John Cale.
0: Yeah, I remember when I had um, the I'm Not There DVD, your audio commentary is fantastic. It's literally um, lecture on music, film, all the influences of Bob Dylan, all the bootlegs, you're quoting other music fingers and stuff. It was an amazing yeah, but that in itself was a homework and a whole <laughs> bunch of other things to explore and take away after the movie. Um, I want to talk about your framing. You use this really yeah. incredible split screen. And again, it's almost like through the sides and the well, there's almost an the academy ratio yeah. to one side and then the two to four squares otherwise. It looks like you've edited probably six films altogether <laughs> going through this.
1: We licensed two and a half hours of footage for a two hour long movie, uh, most of which is the avant-garde films, and probably 45 minutes of which is just Warhol films alone. But, um, but you're so right on to identify the Academy uh, frame and that's the one-three-three aspect ratio that's associated with 16 millimeter filmmaking. And that became the kind of, you know, sort of box that was the sort of uh, informative graphic element that I wanted to build the entire film around within a 185 aspect ratio, which is our standard aspect ratio today. And think about all the ways that 133 Academy frame can fit within the 185. And of course, it starts in the diptych a la. Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls, which was a dual projector film. Oh, and he right. shot with yeah. two, two uh, 60 millimeter um, projectors side by side. And that pushes the two frames to the, f- this sounds really nerdy, but actually it was just pure graphic uh, creative pleasure for me because <laughs> we really get into, as you'll see, and, and people who've seen the film, can't help but comment upon the multi-frame strategies that are used throughout the movie, because they're seductive. They're not intellectual. They draw you in to the language of the times, the movement of the times, and experiments that were going on within optical printers uh, in 1960s experimental film. Even coming out of like Charles and Ray Eames' um, industrial films from the late 50s. And going all the way to feature films, dramatic films like Fleischer's *The Boston Strangler* in 1968. Oh yeah, of course. That is beautifully constructed multi-frame passages throughout that whole film. Again, that's coming right out of the avant-garde.
0: Right. Was it, was it, was that before De Palma? I
1: think mean, that was definitely before De Palma. You know, another movie we often for, I forget about is *Woodstock*, which uses multi-frames oh, yeah, all the way through the film cause they have so much footage and they're trying to think about how to show you the audience and the performers and details of the crowd and the weather and all that stuff at the same time. And so they build this really interesting graphic, um, you know, montage basically on the frame.
0: Yeah. Cause I love when you go, when you finally go, I, is it heroin that you're using as, as it's as climaxing and then you end on that full screen photo of the band?
1: Well, heroin is the first sequence inside the factory and it ends with a sort of rapid fire montage of stills from the factory era. Yeah. But there is that point where we go into a grid. I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to. No,
0: it's one where you go completely full screen, which was such a
1: oh, yeah. sensory yeah. shock. Oh, yeah, yeah, mind. exactly. Because the, the variation would be two, uh, one, three, three, Squares, <clears throat> 4133 three squares, which we use for the Stan Brakhage film during Pale Blue Eyes. Sometimes an entire grid of squares yeah. for the 60s montage. And then, as you say, we go fully inside a single 16 millimeter frame for several parts of it, like in the Boston Tea Party s- sequence in Boston mm-hmm. um, and others where the, the, you feel the most immersion. But what we also did was for all the interviews that we conducted, we put them into the one three three aspect ratio, flush left or flush right in the frame. So they're in little squares, they're in big squares with a black border on the other side of the frame.
0: Let's talk about your interviews. How did you go about selecting, obviously pe- people outside of the band? It's great to see Jonathan Richmond. Oh God, yeah. What an amazing guy.
1: The criteria for me, and this simplified things immeasurably when you're talking about the Velvet Underground was to basically say, okay, we're gonna dive into the time and place and really make that cultural moment come alive as much as possible. And therefore I wanna limit the people I talked to, to people who were there um, and who are still with us, which means, You know, countless brilliant musicians, critics, uh, artists that followed the years of the Velvet Underground and who could tell us a great deal about how the Velvet Underground affected them were just excluded right off the bat. And you sort of see that more in other docs or passages about the Velvets in a Warhol documentary where critics will say, this is what makes them important, you know? I wanted the film to let the audience figure that out for themselves. But in the case of Jonathan Richmond for instance, who was there, he was a teenager in Boston for 60 to 70 shows. He was the, you know, live-in sort of mascot, houseboy or whatever, buddy of the band driving them to the parties in his mother's station wagon after shows, you know, so into this band, learned how to play guitar by Sterling Morrison, opened for the band at some point when he was just starting to make music himself. Uh, he served as both music critic, I mean m- musician who was influenced by the band, fan and witness. So he, he with, with all of that incredible enthusiasm and love for, for the band and and for and sort of gratitude for how how generous they were to him. Was
0: there anyone you wanted to get but didn't want to speak?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Doug Ewell is the most uh, would top that list. Um, he he's alive. He he's uh, we went to him numerous times. I, we just pleaded with him to participate. I really wanted his voice in the movie. I was not trying to exclude Doug Ewell, who is often excluded. In discussions about the Velvet Underground, uh, he's an environmentalist. It was the end of the, you know, the the last years of the Trump era. He, I think, was engaged in other kinds of activities. I get it, and I and I think people, you know, there are times in people's lives where they they're ready to talk about, you know, their early life and and history, and there are times where. They wanna be engaged in what they're doing now. So I, I, I do get that, but, I, uh, but it was a loss for the film, for sure. Gerard Malanga was also somebody we really tried to get on film and he, he was reluctant. And um, I think his presence is felt, I think both of their presences are felt with what we could find, but um, I would have loved to have had both of them participate.
0: And how was it speaking to Lou Reed's sister?
1: It was intense, actually, as you can right. see. <laughs> she was worried about the way these sort of myths about Lou Reed's family have been circulated um, time and again in biographies, starting with Lou Reed's own accounts of his shock treatment himself. And she was sort of there to, and she loves, of course she loves her brother and adores his, his memory and, and, and his work. But I think she also felt like it was, it was too easy and too simplistic to simply blame parents for a kind of homophobic fixation on their son. When in fact, Lou was a complicated teenage kid who exhibited a lot of the same issues and hostilities and, and defenses that I think people would describe in him later In his life throughout his whole life but so she was on guard I wanted that statement to be intact in the film to show her perspective but I have to say I just saw Meryl at the premiere in New York at the New York Film Festival with her son and um, and with Sylvia Reed who was married to Lou Reed for 20 years and people who knew Lou very very well And they really, they really appreciated the film. And Meryl was very, very moved by it and, and said, uh, she said, you are now a member of the Reed family, Todd, which was very very touching.
0: I was wondering, um, from, from your previous music films, the Karen Carpenter story, Bob Dylan, Velvet Goldmine, what, what have you learned previously from your music film experiences that you took onto this? That's
1: a good question phrased that way. I mean, I think you know, they're all they're all quite different subjects obviously. I mean, one could one can probably more closely put together um Velvet Underground, which is sort of a prequel to Velvet Goldmine. Right, yeah. But in many and in, and in ways the the glam rock era is almost hard to uh conceptualize or imagine without the Velvet Underground as arguably is punk rock which followed the glam era um, and Bob Dylan was a force you know um, kind of hovering over the New York art scene music and art and cultural scene in the 60s and they tried very hard to, pre- to to pretend that they were aloof from Bob Dylan the Velvets but I think everybody was interested in what Bob Dylan was doing whether they admitted it or not Um, but I think in all, in all these, you know, there's, this is mostly music I love and has made an impact on my life personally. These, these, these different, uh, musicians and movements. But I think the reason I want to, I think I would, there's plenty of other music I love that I would not necessarily make a film about. It's more how the music and the artists and the sort of have change the culture, affect the culture in some way that is noticeable or how the culture makes such an impact on them that they have a necessity of having to express it musically and artistically. Um, and in the case of Karen Carpenter, of course, who sort of is an outlier in some of these other artists, um, it's about that music has a specific memory for me as a kid but it's so much more about issues around illness and what it and femininity and and um, what it means to be a young woman in the spotlight, and how that affected her, in a in a in in a pop context and the unique pressures of family that surrounded her life.
0: What was the biggest challenge you faced making this documentary, if you could pick one?
1: Not having Lou. Right. There's no there's no there's no question that that was the structuring absence of the film that the film had he been alive uh, he would have been the f- somebody I would have uh, wanted to speak to right away I would need his approval I would want his permission I would want his his um, you know uh, sanction to do this to begin with um, and it would have been a different film and I don't know what kind of film that would have been, how, how, differently, how, how different a film it would have been had he been here. Um, but limitations can, can inspire you also and create creative uh, necessities for how to deal with them and force you to think about your choices in, in a lot of different ways that without them you may not Go in as deeply on some of those things, and so we scoured his, the history of Lou Reed talking about the Velvet Underground and all of his interviews. I didn't wasn't interested in showing clips from all the different eras on videotape, and uh, it wasn't part of the sort of aesthetic language of the film. But his voice is such a huge, and his statements are such a huge part of it. Of course, his images in the in the photo archives we have, in the films we have. But it also means that those interview clips that we have at the end of the film land with, I think, a, a greater impact and poignance um, because we haven't been watching Lute speaking on camera and because we haven't seen him performing live as he does at the end with John
0: Cale and that reunion clip from Paris. And finally, I was wondering, after having so many years of doing a deep dive into Velvet Underground, how is how has your relationship changed with music do you have a new favorite album or loose solo record that you discovered along your journey
1: um not I, I don't think it changed It just deepened my appreciation and and my relationship to all of this um this music i I feel like I got to know like the music the work of of Lamont young and in, in a much deeper way in a way I hadn't before this film that and that was extraordinary but you know the thing that's so unique about the Velvet's is they only put out four records and then they disbanded it. and and most people are most familiar with the first record Velvet Underground Nico the banana record and it's a hugely influential record it's now you know probably rated the most in, you know the best record of the 1960s by Pitchfork or what have you, which took a long time in coming to get to that kind of status, particularly for that decade. Um, but the amazing thing is how they're all so different from the next. Each record is so coherent in its own style and, and sensibility, and they're quite different. Maybe that's least true for the last record, uh, Loaded, which is more of a feels a little bit more like a collection of songs and a kind of preview of coming attractions for the imminent career solo career of Lou Reed, um, and that Mo doesn't play drums on it. I think, you know, doesn't bind that album together in quite the same way as the others, but. Those first three records are just so comprehensive and thorough as musical statements. They're all they're almost concept records unto themselves, um, and it's amazing concentrated amount of work
0: for such a short time. I agree. Even Loaded has some great tracks.
1: Oh God, Lotus, Lotus, Loaded has just one great track after the next. Yeah, uh, I mean, no, without a doubt.
0: Okay, this has been such a pleasure talking to you.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: your services to cinema. Take care. Thank you, buddy. There we go. Me and Todd Haynes. What a fantastic guy. I love it when you talk to directors that you've loved for so long and they turn out to be awesome, interesting people. Okay. I'm excited. Thanks as always to my engineer Ewan Henselwood who makes the podcast possible and sound nice. Joshua Eustace aka Telephone Tel Aviv for my beautiful music. And you guys for listening. These podcast guests are getting crazy. It's so exciting. I'm happy. And I'll see you next time.